Thank you for joining me for quite excellent episode number 74. While our normal release schedule is once every three weeks, we are going into our fourth week since the previous episode. Apologies, we had an essay to focus on. This week, I've selected an especially short poem that offers some solid advice for young writers that may also be good advice just for young people in general. It manages this in less than 50 words. The poem is Young Poets by Nicanor Parra, and it had been translated in English by Miller Williams in the translated collection of Parra's work titled Poems and Antipoems. It is a poem that may fall into the category of Ars Poetica, a genre of poetry that is about poems and the writing of poetry. I had this poem shared with me by Reed teacher, friend, mentor, Terry DeBarger. He sent it to me back in May of last year, and I've nearly forgotten about it, but I really wanted a poem that was on the shorter side. Short poems have all the opportunities for analysis of longer poems, but to avoid making the same points as everyone else when the content to pick from is so less abundant, you need some real creativity and a willingness to make connections that may not be obvious. But these are the best points to make. Less obvious claims require real work to convince others and, as a result, usually produce thoughtful reasoning. Before we can explore our next poem, though, we must revisit The Name Before the Name Before Mine by J. Vesmer. It is read by me this time. The Name Before the Name Before Mine by J. Bessemer. The unknown has a hold of me, and its grip is strong as honey on the underside of a spoon. The unknown I mean is not the usual one, the future, the tomorrow of survival, but the past and what happened in the name of the name after mine and in the name of the name before mine. I do not know enough to speak. I do not know enough to remain silent. There is a fear that holds me, and it sounds like wind. It sounds like Katydids in Katopa. How the tall grass of the days before I knew there was a before me. Where do I live if there's no home remaining? Where do I live if the home I helped build can never be mine, and the one I was born into never was? Now, students had a lot of great things to say about this poem. No real surprise there. And we'll start with the central anxiety of the poem, which is this fear of the unknown. And a lot of students explored and wanted to start with that. A good claim to start with is this one. It says, J. Bessemer uses figurative language to give life to the unknown. The fearful and ominous tone throughout the story is represented by figurative language used throughout it. The overall tone of the story makes the reader unnerved by what's occurring. Another notes that the quotation, it sounds like Hattie Dids and Catalpa, they specifically chose Katydids, one of the loudest insects, to showcase their fear and its overwhelming intensity. It wasn't so much showcasing fear of the present or the future, but more of the past. They feared the many things unknown that came before them and how these mysterious things would affect their life now. A student writes that the poem uses similes to demonstrate how fear and uncertainty fill the speaker's thoughts. Speakers pondering about their idea of the unknown and they say, its grip is strong as honey on the underside of a spoon. A simile like this one seems to be depicting their, their idea of the unknown is controlling their thoughts, and it won't let go. Another writes, Bessemer uses figurative language to personify the unknown and make it a sinister force that follows the person in the poem. The hold the unknown has on the speaker is as strong as honey on the underside of a spoon. 
Having the unknown also take hold of the speaker personifies the unknown and adds a layer of fear in the readers regarding the mystery as to what it is. This unknown not only intimidates the speaker, but also confuses them. And I note that I think a simile might be used here because similes create distance between descriptions and comparisons. They maybe imply a little bit of confusion that makes comparison necessary for clarity, but also maybe makes clarity a little impossible. There's also some inherent contradictions that students seem to be finding in here. One writes that it describes a very unsettling feeling whilst also providing the sense of safety and comfort. The student points to not the usual unknown, like a familiar unknown, and they go on by writing that it creates a sense of confusion and fear within the reader. He later says, as honey on the underside of a spoon, that is very welcoming and warm statement compared with the previous quote. These two entirely different emotions both contribute to the overall vibe of the poem, the feeling of hot and cold, the present and the past. Another writes it, it says honey stuck on the underside of the spoon, which isn't trying to display safety, because we all usually see honey as sweet and maybe welcoming, but it tries to use that simile to show how the unknown grapples onto him. Another points to the same quotation and says that it can be interpreted in different ways, warm or welcoming or an uncomfortable thing. Students point to an underlying conflict within the speaker of this poem. One writes that the title and the focus on names in the poem could be an additional hint to an identity crisis in the speaker. Another writes that though their past is unclear in the poem, the speaker feels psychologically trapped because of it, making them question their identity and who they really are. One points to the use of lowercase letters in the poem to connect to this idea, writing that the lowercase letters could be showing that the poem was made for getting thoughts out on their feelings and doubt of what is going on for them, not so much caring about specifics. An example being the usual one, the future, the tomorrow of survival. This is a sentence that would clearly have some commas in place, but the writer didn't add them, almost as if they weren't really thinking about making their sentences look correct. And another response is this comment. This poem is not written with correct grammar to make it seem as a result of the speaker's mental state, as their existential crisis makes this poem seem like their cry for help. And this idea of a need for help and assistance is, I think, a really interesting one. And one solution, one maybe remedy to that need is a connection to others that a few students thought was present in this poem, or at least a need for that connection. One student writes that the speaker talks of the fear and struggles of not feeling connected to people. The speaker isn't struggling with worries about the future like most people, but about his ancestry and who is going to come after him. Bessemer also fears not being seen. There's a fear that holds me and it sounds like wind and it sounds like katydids and catalpa. Just like the wind is not seen but can be felt and like katydids are not camouflaged on catalpa trees. These things are present but not seen, just like the speaker's fears. An important point that one student got to is that these fears maybe weren't always present. There was a time before them. The student writes that the tall grass of the days before I knew there was a before me heavily suggests a time of innocence or ignorance before the speaker became aware of their history and the challenges it presents. But of course, once they are in that moment, once they are aware, there's that need. 
Another potential resolution for that need is a connection to the past. One student writes, when it says the unknown has hold of me, and what happened in the name of the name after mine, and the name in the name before mine, I feel like he very much wants to know what happened to his ancestors. Another says that this poem ponders the past efforts of those before Bessemer that he currently lives from, and how a change in the past could affect his future. One also possible need is the need for a home, which a number of students explored. One pointed to, the one I was born into never was, and said, that makes it seem as though the speaker has a strained relation to someone at the home he was born into. It is possible the speaker never got along with his family, which caused him to feel out of place in the home he was born into. Another points to the line, where do I live if there's no home remaining? And they say this shows that the author is confused on where his home or place in the world is. Another piece of text students grabbed onto for this was, where do I live if the home I helped build can never be mine and the one I was born into never was? And this student says, the Bessemer details the fact that he or his future relatives could be worse off if he doesn't help build a home. And last along this series, a student writes that lowercase letters in the sentence showcase how the speaker feels they are alone and don't belong. They feel like they have nowhere to go. They're not welcome anywhere. And this is a good place to look at how students considered those lowercase letters and the lack of other grammatical elements. In total, I think students made the argument that there was something really intimate and honest about this choice in the writing. It almost humbles the writing and the speaker a little bit. And for this reason, I think these choices to break convention are something that we might call structural intimacy. One student says that using all lowercase letters with these kinds of phrases, such as there's no home remaining, make the author appear very vulnerable. Another writes, Bessemer uses lowercase to express the fear he is going through due to the present. This is especially true because it seems as if they were just thoughts he wrote down with a sort of urgency, which would explain the lack of punctuation and capitalization. As student says that since the speaker is not directly speaking to anyone, it almost feels like a journal entry. And maybe, and maybe this lack of listener excuses or explains the break in format in that intimacy. Another writes that the author uses the format of lowercase letters to emphasize the author's inner thoughts. In another, a student says, Bessemer seems to be spending a lot of thought thinking about the unknown. They go on to explain roughly that this may attribute to the use of only lowercase letters and no punctuation. He's getting his thoughts down as they come, with no regard as to how they are arranged. Another response says that the speaker uses lowercase letters and no punctuation to show vulnerability. One of the quotes is, the unknown has hold of me and its grip is strong. This shows me vulnerability and sadness because the author appears afraid of the unknown. In my opinion, something with all lowercase letters gives a sense of honestness and thoughts that are coming straight from someone's heart. And last, a good place to end, I think, is a student says that I think Bessemer uses lowercase letters to show uncertainty. When I think of uppercase letters, I think of definitive things like the United States or the Eiffel Tower. Because there are no capital letters, I think Bessemer is trying to infer that he isn't certain of anything, and a lot remains unknown to him. And what a great place to end. Uh, for a poem where we start by thinking about this fear of the unknown, and then ending at a place where we recognize that there may be a lot that is unknown, it's easy to imagine that fear of 
so much, that anxiety to be so big. This analysis that students had was great. I'm really impressed with all the ways we see this character, this speaker in need, in searching for things that might not have easy answers with an intimate internal look at their thought process that nonetheless helps us maybe see the way that anyone can view the world and their place in it, their place in history, their place in the present. These are great ideas. I'm very impressed. Our next poem is Young Poets by Nicanor Parra, translated by Miller Williams. It is the briefest poem we've worked with so far at only eight lines and three stanzas, depending on the translation. There isn't a lot of quotable material here, but this is a good thing, actually. Because this poem is a bit of an ars poetica, it seems appropriate for our writing tasks and secret passphrase to get into the nitty-gritty of poetry analysis. For our secret passphrase, I want students to use the word stanza. A stanza is a group of words and lines that function together as a unit. These are identified by line breaks before and after the stanza. This translation of Young Poets has three stanzas, with the first being five lines in length, the second stanza having only one line, and the final stanza having two lines. Be sure to use this term in your response. As for our writing task, I'm finally going to introduce an essential piece of punctuation that you should be using when quoting poems. This is the forward slash. On your keyboard, it is generally found next to the right shift key, often sharing the same key as the question mark. As we've often discussed in class, when we quote material, we need to quote exactly. Last week, this meant keeping everything lowercase. Well, we also need to indicate when lines end, if it happens within the material we quote. When you quote material that comes from two consecutive lines, you must use a single forward slash to indicate exactly where one line ends and the new one begins. This is called a line break. So, for example, if you wanted a quote from the fourth and fifth lines of Young Poets, you'd place a forward slash after the word believing. If you happen to quote material from the end of one stanza and the beginning of the next stanza, you must use two forward slashes. If you wanted to quote lines seven and eight of Young Poets, you'd place two forward slashes after the word permitted. I'll provide an attachment on the Google Classroom assignment to provide more guidance if it is needed. Some students have actually been expertly using forward slashes since our very first poem response, but now they're going to be required, which means not only do students need to use them to earn the writing task point, but they may need to be using them to earn the quotation accuracy point as well, should they quote more than one line. This is a good poem to start using this new punctuation mark because there are a number of sentences that run from one line to the next. I'm looking forward to see what students choose to quote here because the poem is really about the freedom that writers should have. But it isn't only about writing or poetry. The metaphors about blood and bridges and roads suggest there's more to it than that. Where we talk about blood, we also talk about life. Where we talk about roads, we speak also of the future, the past, and the distances we travel between them. In that way, this poem feels like a natural progression from our last one. Here is Young Poets by Nicanor Potter, translated by Miller Williams. Young Poets by Nicanor Potter, translated by Miller Williams. Write as you will, in whatever style you like. Too much blood has run under the bridge to go on believing that only one road is right. In poetry, everything is permitted with 
Only this condition, of course. You have to improve the blank page. A paragraph responding to this prompt is due on the Friday that ends this week, and your two replies to other students are due the Wednesday after. Students, be sure to use the phrase stanza in some form in your responses, as this is your secret passphrase. For a writing task, you need to select a quotation that goes from one line to another so that you can use a forward slash that indicates where the line break originally was. If you quote from one stanza to another, be sure to use two forward slashes to indicate the stanza break. Don't forget to make use of our previous writing task as well. A strong analytical paragraph requires a quality claim. Starting with a tag, a how, and a what will make sure that that happens. Use the author's last name by itself if you want, especially if you are talking about the structure of the poem. There is again a speaker here, that is the I of the poem, that we don't hear, but we know is present. We know that it's speaking to us. And they're talking to someone, who we will call the listener. Paying attention to sentence variety is also a good idea, of course. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, want to provide a reading, or would like the class to direct their eyes toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 74 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent.